One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. I've decamped from our usual studio to the Houses of Parliament, sitting in a green leather armchair bearing the gold portcullis of Parliament, sitting in the upper gallery just outside where journalists sit and watch what's happening in the Commons chamber. Here for the spring statement, Philip Hammond's low-key uh, update on what's happening with the economy. It's almost like he didn't want anyone to notice, frankly, what was happening uh, in the Commons. It would be a bit much, perhaps, to think that the Chancellor had a hand in the Salisbury spy poisoning, suspect packages in Parliament, the Speaker facing a plot to oust him, bullying claims engulfing the Commons, a footballer spitting like... Well, like a footballer, and Ken Dodd's marathon 90-year performance finally coming to an end. Hammond would be forgiven for being furious at being overshadowed, were we not so keen on being overshadowed. No big new policy announcements in the statement. We'll unpick what happened in the politics of it all. We'll also discuss Russia and what exactly Britain can do if, as everyone now assumes, Moscow is found to have been behind the poisoning in Salisbury. And we'll take a look at the bullying scandal and whether or not it really threatens John Burko and his position as Commons Speaker. I'm joined by Patrick Kidd, Times sketchwriter and Times columnist Rachel Sylvester. Let's start with you, Rachel. What did you make of this short, understated, no rabbits out of hat statement from Philip Hammond? Well, I bumped into someone from the Treasury on the way into the statement who said, you know, no tricks, no rabbits out of hat. That's Phil Hammond, you know, very straight. Uh, And that's what it was. It wasn't meant to be flashy, you know, almost deliberately boring. Uh, But on the other hand, he was trying to be a bit more upbeat than previously. Light at the end of the tunnel. He made a joke about his own Eeyore reputation by saying that real Eeyores were on the other side of the house on the Labour benches. He was trying to say, you know, growth was going to return, deficit was being paid down although you know incredibly slow it's something like gone up from 1.4 percent to 1.5 percent so the it's not exactly you know party at the end of the (coughs) tunnel um but and then he signaled that there could be some loosening of the purse strings in the autumn budget but no real announcements um of a major level in this uh, statement and in fact about 20 minutes in the news broke on twitter rex tillerson had been fired and you could almost see going around the chamber people thinking oh my goodness that's definitely going to overshadow what's happening in here it did feel a bit like i remember once being in the commons when there was a, a big debate or pmqs was going on at the same time that the ukip flotilla was going up and down the river outside <laughs> it really felt like the news was going on somewhere else um, one of the things that surprised me was and i wrote about this in the red box email this morning ask most Tories about Philip Hammond and they'll say he's quite good at the numbers but he's terrible at politics he's got a tin ear for politics he keeps on making gaffes he says things which can be used by opponents actually I was quite surprised his statement was incredibly political I mean partly because he wasn't actually making any announcements but it was it was largely 20 minutes of attacking Labour's economic policy it was the balanced approach versus 
you know, tax and spend. I think, and he's, you know, he was very dogged on that. The only problem I thought with the politics of it was he's quite unemotional. He doesn't get the human side of the economy. So all John McDonnell had to do was stand up at the end of Philip Hammond's um, statement and say, what about the doctors? What about the nurses? What about the teachers? And suddenly he humanised these facts and figures that have been coming out of the Chancellor's mouth. And you did suddenly realise actually that's Labour's strength on this. Uh, And in a way, the Tories are in danger of losing the argument on the economy if they go so much on statistics and they kind of lose touch with how people are feeling which it's not feeling great for a lot of people public services are feeling squeezed people are seeing operations cancelled you know care homes closing school class sizes going up and actually the voters feel quite angry and i think there's a danger of the conservatives with their very kind of hard uh, you know economic dry fiscal approach sounding out of touch with where people feel the the real economy is patrick i was struck listening to Philip Hammond and then John McDonnell. They, they, they seem to be talking about two different countries. In uh, Philip Hammond's country, uh, wages are up, jobs are up, the economy's growing, everybody's got more money, the sun shines every day, and then John McDonnell gets up and says it's all terrible. Every public service is in crisis, he said. He was talking about disabled people, homeless people. Everybody was having a terrible time. Do you think either, because that's both so extreme, do you think either chime with, with voters? Well, he sort of preempted that, the Chancellor, by, uh, as Rachel said, to calling Labour a bunch of yours, and then said that I'm most tickerish, when probably most folks will just think there's a lot of poo in the middle. Um, all around. <laughs> um, I, yeah, we've seen this with, with John McDonnell a bit, that he gets the uh, the hanky with the onion out of the pocket and says, won't someone think of the children? And you're right, this this does come across as, as more human, but I'm sure this is a sincerity to it, but it is also part of the prepared act. And when McDonnell, in one of his attack lines, said the Tories aren't investing in robots, I thought, well, look at the front bench. You've got two, <laughs> two right there. And then we've got the heckle from Simon Hall on the, late, on the Tory backbench saying, speaking of artificial intelligence at the Chancellor. And then the attack on the Tory bully boys from yes, John McDonnell, from McDonnell who's McDonnell refused of all, of to all condemn you know, female MPs being lynched. Yes. But it was a slightly subdued occasion. There were lots of spaces in the chamber on both sides. This was a, a fairly mercifully short speech, but um, I think that Hammonds was, was, was better scripted. He, he had worked out how to tickle his troops. And what was particularly noticeable was that, I don't often see this, um, the response to McDonald's response, if you like, was clearly scripted. In fact, he had several pages of typed notes in front of him. Uh, and and McDonald started to protest, saying he's making a second speech now. But he had lots of attack lines on Labour and on McDonald in particular, written well enough that you've got these ripples of cheers and jeers coming from his trips. So on, on the theatre side, you know, Rachel's the expert, I'm just the theatre critic, I, I think it was well staged by, by Hammond. But uh, McDonald was clearly going to play on that. We, you know, we're on the people's side, you're just a numbers man. The other fascinating thing is that this is setting up the battle lines for the next however many four years till the next election so both in terms of the budget in the autumn but then actually just in fact possibly more importantly Hammond signaling that was saying there's going to be a comprehensive spending review next year which will set out the spending departmental limits and that's going to be a huge political battle lines drawn on that how much is each side going to give for the NHS, schools, housing, welfare and that's where the the kind of post-Brexit economic agenda is going to move by the time of the next election potentially that's what it'll be all about what's in that spending review well it's that crucially will come after brexit 
Um, and, and so, which is overshadowing everything still at the moment for all the talk of Russia and Brexit, as we now had halfway through that. So, we're still listening. It was noticeable that the, there were a few jokes in there, not, not bad jokes, a nice one at Matt Hancock's expense. But the biggest laughter, certainly from the opposition benches, was uh, when Hammond said, We've made significant progress in our negotiations with the European Union. <laughs> and that sort of slightly backfired. Um, clearly, Brexit is still dominating everything, but Rachel's absolutely right. He's now looking ahead. And when Brexit happens, we've still got three years to an election. Quite a big debate or divide on the Tory benches now, as well as between Labour and the Conservatives, on whether austerity has run its course. Um, and I, the, the sort of growing number of Tory MPs who think the, the voters are just weary of this kind of constant talk of austerity and constant squeezes. And actually now the chance has got to loosen up a bit and think a bit more innovatively about not just how, how to spend money, but whether to spend money and how you sort of talk again about the public services and, and also clamping down on the sort of excesses of capitalism. I thought it was striking. He appeared to be basically by saying there is going to be a spending review. Things are looking up. They're still looking up a bit in the autumn. He's sort of loosened the purse strings. He just won't dip into the purse yet. That's, a sort, of, exactly. that's sort of where he is. Um, one of the really interesting things, and this is the sort of thing that won't probably get picked up in the sort of TV coverage afterwards, but Ken Clark was the first, the sort of, father of the house former chancellor he was the first person called after john mcdonald and he raised this question he said that the um older older well-off people who are still working which he included himself in um they do quite well they don't pay national insurance they can uh, sit on huge assets you know houses which have risen massively in value and those gains are discounted when uh, uh, social care and means testing and that sort of being looked at the Chancellor stood up and said he was a big fan of looking at intergenerational fairness and he would obviously look at all issues. Do you think that, I mean, that's, it takes a lot of political courage to start going after essentially the traditional older, well-off Tory voter. Do you, do you think that this, this government, without a majority, with Brexit to deal with as well, has got the courage to, to even consider doing that? I definitely think Philip Hammond wants to do that. Uh, I think he's looked before at this issue of national insurance for pensioners. It's an obvious thing to do. It's totally illogical that you're working, you're earning money, but you pay lower tax as a pensioner, working age working pensioner age person than as a younger worker. Um, Philip Hammond also, he's very aware about this kind of um, growing wealth gap between older and younger voters, the younger people unable to get the foot on the housing ladder. The problem is if they mishandle it, you end up in the dementia tax situation that the Tories were in at the election. And the problem with that, though, was that it was just a bad policy badly explained so I think what they they need to do and they probably are trying to do is to get to this kind of intergenerational fairness issue perhaps through something like national insurance for pensioners but without turning it into the whole dementia tax row which was basically we're going to seize your home and if you've got dementia you're going to be screwed the problem with that policy was to do with the fact they didn't have a cap on the care costs so it was a, it was a badly thought through policy but it didn't mean it wasn't trying to get to a in unfairness in the system and patrick using outriders if you like with people like ken clark get them to start making the case for 
older people who are still working you know and he, he said he'd be happy to make a contribution and <laughs> philip hammond joked i'll send you the treasury's bank details yeah. and you can you can send in your own contribution but the, the, what the tories failed to do in the election campaign was sort of build the argument build the case for these changes maybe they maybe they have learned the lesson maybe philip hammond is getting the hang, hang of this politics like after all well it felt like the election campaign was long enough that they could have made the case yeah. for it. but um they, what that was a policy that was was made up on the hoof to such an extent that the health secretary hadn't even been told about it even though it was being done to raise money for social care. Um, they've got to realise they've got four years that, that I don't think we're going to have an early election. And so these things can be properly thought out. And you're, you're right that sometimes it helps to have something floated by an elder statesman. Equally, you know, have things floated by people on Labour's side. Start looking at consensus. You know, clip Labour's wings a bit by sort of getting Frank Field to look at work and pensions and, and stuff like that. Um, it's very hard to oppose if, if policies are coming from the other side of the House. Well, the Tories who back the, that similar policy. Sarah Wollaston's uh, floated the idea of a uh, tax rises for older workers. David Willits similarly yeah. wants much more done on um, taking assets from older people to help pay for social care. So there's definitely, uh, and, and on the Labour side. It's just a lesson that election that, that if you're not ready to announce, I think what happened is that Nick Timothy felt we're 20 odd points ahead in the polls. We can just put it in and we'll have a mandate for it. It doesn't need to be filled out. Just give the rough idea and then people can say, well, you can't oppose it. And of course, that's fine if you win a 20-point majority <laughs> in the end. And that's not, that's not how it panned out. I mean, there's lots of other you know, calls for evidence, which is about the sort of the, the, the very tiny baby steps of new ideas. There was calls for evidence on plastics and pollution and taxing tech firms. And, but all this is just building up towards mm. the... Do you think, looking back... Land banking. Land banking for housing. I was quite interested in the idea that we're going to have um, tax incentives for the cleanest white vans, which makes me think of someone with a mop and bucket. <laughs> or the clean me written in the grime at the back of it. In the end, do you think we'll ever look back at this and remember this spring statement or was that sort of the point if, if, if people forget about this by this time next week I is that mission absolutely thrilled it's just it's a get get through get through it get a few things out there get a few consultations going and then wait for the big announcements in the autumn and next uh, csr next year i was going to say philip hammond began by saying this is the first ever spring statement and his first words his first joke was it allows more time for stakeholder and fiscal engagement on the potential for fiscal change summed up in his usual snappy way well that's good we've just spent quarter of an hour discussing something that we're going to have forgotten about by next week uh, but for now my thanks to rachel sylvester and patrick Hood. Still to come, I'm joined by Francis Elliott and Lucy Fisher to discuss Russia and the bullying scandal. We'll be back after this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I'm joined now by Francis Elliott, the political editor of The Times, and Lucy Fisher, senior political correspondent. Um, let's talk about the other stuff, the, the stuff which is actually dominating the news. And it did join the spring statement because while everyone was sitting listening to Philip Hammond joining on, we got the news that Rex Tillerson uh, was getting the boot as Secretary of State. Francis, just talk, talk, how, how serious is, is the Russia question? Theresa May's statement yesterday was pretty extraordinary. It was tougher than lots of people might have expected. How, how serious is it? It's it's very serious. I mean, it's quite difficult to see anything similar that she's had to deal with in her two years in power. Uh, this is a real test of her and this country. You know, we have been subject to what would appear to be a state-sponsored attack, uh, one that ministers believe uh, has been gamed out in the Kremlin to make the UK look isolated, humiliated and weak. Uh, And that's why the reaction of our allies in the next two or three days is is going to be absolutely critical and we're going to find out a lot about where this country stands in the world. One of the things, so immediately after Theresa May's statement, she spoke to President Macron, who offered his support. Interestingly, the White House, although they said they stood with an ally, didn't mention Russia specifically. A few hours later, Rex Tillerson did mention Russia and said that you know, he accepted Britain's explanation that it looked like a Russian-sponsored attack. Uh, but now he's out of a job. Now, as far as we can tell at the moment, it looks like he was out of a job last Friday. So this came pre... Uh, what happened with... But it, it muddies it a bit if what appeared to be the, the person in the Trump administration who was aligning with us on Russia is out of the door. Well, Trump has just actually spoken about uh, about this uh, in the last couple of minutes. Um, not very well. I mean, in he's kind of well in the sense in the sense that he he has in his inimitable way, inimitable use of language, uh, begged begged a few questions. He say, he has said in effect that uh, the UK believes it was a, a Russian attack, and um, if we agree with the facts, I think um, is the locution that he chose. Uh, then we too will condemn Russia or whoever it is. It's not exactly shoulder to shoulder. I think it's a little bit early and unfair to to suggest that this is um, this is evidence of Trump being uh, in Putin's pocket or not, um, or, 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 or pulling his punches on this. I, I, I think he is. Actually, funnily enough, I think he is trying to do the right thing in terms of allowing Theresa May to lead the response and to to make it look like its uh, actions are following the consequences of the investigation. Um, but, you know, it, there's so much neuralgia around this for the reasons that I kind of, you know, spoke to before, that, that, that anything that is said on this is going to get minutely examined and, and kind of um, judged. To some extent, Trump's statement sounds like essentially what Theresa May was saying. It looks like it's Russia. We've given them 24 hours to, you know, and then to take it from there. Lucy, the statement that Theresa May gave was also extraordinary because of Jeremy Corbyn's response, where he 
at some length went on about Russian donors to the Tory party mm-hmm. and was shouted down by his own side, by the Tory side. Mm-hmm. And then lots of the questions that Theresa May then had were essentially Labour MPs having a dig at their own leader. It, it reminded us of the early days of the Corbyn leadership, but something we haven't seen really since the election. The widespread consensus has been that Jeremy Corbyn uh, misjudged his response um, to what was quite a grave um, moment about you know national security uh, in the chamber. Um, and as well as, as you say, sort of trying to score political points by talking about Theresa May's um, uh, acceptance of money from um, Russian businessmen to the Conservative Party since she's become leader uh, and therefore questioning whether her ability to kind of clamp down on the Kremlin could be compromised. He also was very uh, equivocal in in the way in which he suggested that Britain should sort of look to sort of dampen down tensions with Russia, sit down around the table and talk um, with the Kremlin, which again just seemed a a misjudgment of of where we're at and um, a misjudged response to the evidence which points towards this being a state-sponsored attack on domestic soil. It was was sort of striking when you had, you've got the Lib Dems, even Nicola Sturgeon was talking about this was an attack on our streets. You know, lots of other politicians were used to partisan attacks on on the Tories actually use this occasion to say this was something terrible which has happened on British soil and there should be a united response to it. Do you think we'll see Labour's position shift in the next few days? It's interesting. They don't appear to have have, um, have rode back so far. Uh, I think there's been a lot of scrutiny of some of the advisers around Jeremy Corbyn, um, Seamus Milne, um, former Guardian columnist uh, who's his director of communications who has been um, very sympathetic to the Kremlin uh, in the past. People digging up kind of columns he wrote in um, previous years, people also looking at the role of um, Andrew Murray, um, a Unite official who is uh, seconded to the Labour leader's office, who again had, had had links to Russia before. So I, I think some of the people around um, the Labour leader's office uh, have traditionally been more aligned to Moscow than uh, than the rest of uh, of UK politics. But as a result, the sort of the accusations from the Labour Party are a bit mixed. On the one hand, they're sort of accusing the government of being too hard on Russia. Don't be too hard on Russia. And on the other hand saying, although in the pockets of Russia, not for the first time, Labour's um, position is a bit confused. Um, Francis, what do we think the government can actually do? In the Times, the, there's been Whitehall sources suggesting that, you know, talking about possible cyber attack. Or, I mean, it does feel like something pretty awful has happened in the UK, and they're back to talking about possibly kicking out some diplomats, maybe some more economic sanctions. But they, they have done all of this already in response to previous things, whether it was Litvinenko or Crimea. It doesn't appear to have troubled Putin before. There's elections in Russia this weekend. Is there anything really that Britain can do about this? If the question is, can we take action that is going to bring Putin to his knees and, and make him change his ways? And the answer, I think, has to be no. But then I don't think that is the question necessarily. I think the question is, um, is this a moment uh, around which the UK can begin to lead uh, and a sort of international coalition of, uh, re- you know, rebuke and, and calling them out? And I think potentially it's, it's a, you know, it's a it, it, one... One way of selling a post-Brexit Britain is that Britain is a, um, is a champion of the rule of law and it's the one place which plays by the rules. Uh, uh, and therefore, if Theresa May can emerge as a sort of defender of rules-based democracy, and, and you saw her beginning to do this in her Mansion House speech before, I think she's kind of I think she, she's edging towards this and recruit 
a sort of an alliance around it that is that is sort of post-Brexit, that is EU, that is NATO, that is transatlantic alliance, that, you know, maybe some other sort of, you know, uh, G7 is another sort of important um, multilateral agency, then you then you do begin to see kind of Britain beginning to find a bit of a role in itself uh, uh, in this in this new reality that we find ourselves where states can, you know, pursue kind of hybrid warfare, uh, which is which is what we're seeing. So, um, no, it's not going to, to, to bring um, Putin to his knees. But but yes, it, it could be a significant moment for, you know, British diplomacy and and uh, and it's finding its kind of feet in a post Brexit universe. Let's move on to one of the other. I mean, there were so many political... Sometimes we think all we talk about is Brexit, but this week, thankfully, Brexit has been slightly out of the news. Let's all move on and talk about um, one of the uh, other big stories of the week, Lucy, and um, bullying in the House of Commons. The, we had the sort of harassment story and how that played out before Christmas, but now the sort of emphasis moved on to bullying. Broken by Newsnight last week, allegations against John Burko in particular... Again, another extraordinary statement, I keep saying this, being in the House of Commons, where there was a debate about bullying in the House of Commons and allegations about John Burke while he was sitting in the chair and chairing the, chairing the debate yesterday. Yeah, I think a lot of people had their eyebrows going through the roof that he didn't kind of recuse himself and allow one of his deputy speakers to take the chair while people were discussing uh, discussing the allegations against, uh, against him. I think people pointed out the irony that usually in the chamber, uh, MPs direct questions to ministers via the speaker. Yesterday, we saw uh, MPs direct questions to the speaker via ministers. It's interesting, I think, that this sort of scandal's got, got, got legs and will, will continue to run. It's a sort of, it's an usual setup in, in Parliament. You know, you get people elected who've not necessarily ever run um, a, a business or an organisation before and had to deal with staff. There's absolutely no training. Um, there's very few HR structures, although that slowly um, seems to be beginning to, to change, starting with sort of pretty obvious and basic complaints models that have kind of confidentiality and sort of due process built in. Um, but it, it will be interesting to see what happens. Andrea Ledsom's called for an independent inquiry um, to uh, extend the processes that are open to MP staff, that to cover um, parliamentary staff because some of the allegations that have come out in the past week are that the Speaker and other MPs were bullying um, clerks of the Parliament, um, allegations that they deny. So it, it will be interesting to see whether Labour get behind that sort of Tory-led move to, to have an independent inquiry. It's also interesting to see what, I mean, we've been here lots of times before where people say, oh, you know, this could this be it for Burko? There'll be various moments and coups and that sort of thing. If if there are more allegations against him and there is evidence that they are true, this, because of the nature of them, he's traditionally relied on support from the Labour Party. But the Labour Party being highly critical of all MPs caught up in the harassment scandal and potentially now the bullying scandal. Do you think, is this potentially the thing that he might not be able to survive? I think it totally um, depends really on what, what else might come out. Um, I, I could certainly see him surviving this if, if, the, if the recent allegations... Um, are the only thing that comes out. Of course, this is going to be a political question. Um, already there's been sort of rumours that Harriet Harman might want to put herself forward. Um, I don't believe she'd be a particularly popular choice with the Labour leadership for for, um, for replacement for Speaker Burkow. Well, so they might want him to remain in place. That's the reason why Tory MPs and Labour MPs <laughs> would, vote, would vote for. In the same way that John Burko ended up as, as common speaker because Labour MPs thought it would annoy... Uh, you know, David Cameron's then Tory leadership. Yep, there's always many factors and sort of default sort of um, uh, agendas at play in these kind of decisions. Francis, when the sexual harassment 
allegations broke before Christmas. There was lots of talk then that, yes, that culture was a problem, but actually the bigger culture that was more widespread was this issue of bullying. Do you think the nature of Parliament means that it can ever be properly addressed? Because one of the, whenever anyone, somebody, somebody suggested, well, maybe these staff should all be centrally managed, there were certain types of MPs who quite like being masters of their own kingdom. You know, they, they insist on rules which say they can jump the queue in the coffee shop and all that sort of stuff. They are essentially sovereign and above all of that. It's quite a big culture shift for that to be properly addressed, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't buy it. I mean, they, you know, they just need to kind of get into the twenty-first century and, and understand that uh, uh, you can't get away with that sort of behaviour, and you wouldn't be able to get away with it if you were, uh, you know, a small business, and you shouldn't be able to get away with it if you're, you know. I, I understand that it's an entrepreneurial activity. It's a, um, you know, it's a very strange sort of setup, um, and. Uh, and motivations are odd, and, and things, you know, uh, and all the rest of it. The, cult, the culture is unique, but it is not beyond the wit of man to construct a complaint system that that underpins and reinforces that you you, know, you behave properly to one another. Uh, so I don't think that there's anything special about this place in that regard. Just before we uh, finish up, Andrea Leadsom has sort of been reborn in this role as Commons leader. She was the almost joke candidate who almost became Prime Minister. Then she went to DEFRA and sort of slightly disappeared, was demoted to Commons leader. And this, she's really taken a hold of this as an issue and actually does appear step by step to be making changes. She's also managed to get the vote on MPs moving out for the restoration. She's sort of one of the, the great great political survivors. Yeah, uh, I think she uh, has been a huge beneficiary um, of, of the, both the Pestminster and uh, thus far the bullying scandal. Um, she seems to have grabbed the bull by the horns um, in making a pretty robust uh, fight back against it and setting in motion some of the inquiries and new processes that you mentioned, Matt. Um, it was interesting, you know, she had been someone who'd been tipped for the chop back in January when there was the reshuffle um, in the sort of, sort of weeks and months leading up to that as people were speculating about it and tidbits were coming out of sort of number 10 but um, I think you know she no doubt very much has entrenched herself then and, and certainly now through through her actions um, taking quite firm grasp uh, of control. We'll be interested to see how all this plays out but for now my thanks to Patrick Kidd, Rachel Sylvester, Francis Elliott and Lucy Fisher. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on your Android device and sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box but for now from Parliament from me Matt Jolly it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.